0: Chapter Eight Part One of the Coming of the Fairies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Coming of the Fairies by Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Eight Part One The Theosophic View of Fairies. Of all the religions and philosophies in Western lands, I know none save that ancient teaching now called Theosophy, which has any place in it for elemental forms of life. Therefore, since we have established some sort of independent case for their existence, it is well that we should examine carefully what they teach and see how far it fits into with what we have been able to gather or to demonstrate. There is no one who has a better right to speak upon the point than my co-worker, Mr. E. L. Gardner, since he is both the discoverer of the fairies and a considerable authority upon theosophic teaching. I am glad, therefore, to be able to include some notes from his pen. For the most part, he writes, amid the busy commercialism of modern times, the fact of their existence has faded to a shadow, and a most delightful and charming field of nature study has too long been veiled. In this twentieth century there is promise of the world stepping out of some of its darker shadows. Maybe it is an indication that we are reaching the silver lining of the clouds when we find ourselves suddenly presented with actual photographs of these enchanting little creatures, relegated long since to the realm of the imaginary and fanciful. Now what are the fairies? first it must be clearly understood that all that can be photographed must of necessity be physical. Nothing of a subtler order could in the nature of things affect the sensitive plate. So-called spirit photographs, for instance, imply necessarily a certain degree of materialization before the form could come within the range even of the most sensitive of films. But well within our physical octave there are degrees of density that elude ordinary vision. Just as there are many stars in the heavens, recorded by the camera, that no human eye has ever seen directly, so there is a vast array of living creatures, whose bodies are of that rare tenuity and subtlety, from our point of view, that they lie beyond the range of our normal senses. Many children and sensitives see them, and hence our fairy lore, all founded on actual and now demonstrable fact. Fairies use bodies of a density that we should describe, in non-technical language, as of a lighter than gaseous nature, but we should be entirely wrong if we thought them, in consequence, unsubstantial. In their own way they are as real as we are, and perform functions, in connection with plant life, of an important and most fascinating character. To hint at one phase, many a reader will have remarked on the lasting freshness and beauty of flowers cut and tended by one person, and on the other hand, their comparatively short life when in the care of another. The explanation is to be found in the kindly devotion of the one person and the comparative indifference of the other, which emotions affect keenly the nature spirits in whose immediate care the flowers are. Their response to love and tenderness is quickly evidence in their charges. Fairies are not born and do not die as we do, though they have their periods of outer activity and retirement. Allied to the Lepidoptera, or butterfly genus, of our familiar acquaintance, rather than to the mammalian line, they partake of certain characteristics that are obvious. There is little or no mentality awake, simply a gladsome, irresponsible joyousness of life, that is abundantly in evidence in their enchanting abandon. The diminutive human form, so widely assumed, is doubtless due, at least in a great measure, to the powerful influence of human thought, the strongest creative power in our cycle. In the investigations I have pursued in Yorkshire, the New Forest, and Scotland, Many fairy lovers and observers have been interviewed and their accounts compared. In most cases I was interested to note that my share in making public the photographs of Cottingley was the worst sort of introduction imaginable. Few fairy lovers have looked with favor on that. Reproaches have been frequent and couched in no measured terms, for the photographs have been resented as an unwarranted intrusion and desecration. Only after earnest assurances as to my own attitude could I get farther and obtain those intimate confidences that I have compared and checked and pieced together, and am at liberty to narrate here. The function of the nature-spirit of woodland, meadow, and garden, indeed in connection with vegetation generally, is to furnish the vital connecting link between the stimulating energy of the sun and the raw material of the form. THAT GROWTH OF A PLANT, WHICH WE REGARD AS THE CUSTOMARY AND INEVITABLE RESULT OF ASSOCIATING THE THREE FACTORS OF SUN, SEED, AND SOIL, WOULD NEVER TAKE PLACE IF THE FAIRY BUILDERS WERE ABSENT. WE DO NOT OBTAIN MUSIC FROM AN ORGAN BY ASSOCIATING THE WIND, A COMPOSER'S SCORE, AND AN INSTRUMENT. THE VITAL LINK SUPPLIED BY THE ORGANIST, THOUGH HE MAY BE UNSEEN, IS NEEDED and similarly the nature spirits are essential to the production of the plant the fairy body the normal working body of the gnome and fairy is not of human nor of any other definite form and herein lies the explanation of much that has been puzzling concerning the nature spirit kingdom generally they have no clean-cut shape normally and one can only describe them as small hazy and somewhat luminous clouds of colour, with a brighter spark-like nucleus. As such they cannot be defined in terms of form any more than one can so describe a tongue of flame. In such a body they fill their office, working inside the plant structure. Magnetic is the only word that can describe their method. Instantly, responsive to stimulus, they appear to be influenced from two directions, the physical outer conditions prevailing and an inner intelligent urge these two influences determine their working activity some and these are by far the most numerous work on cell construction and organization and are comparatively small when assuming the human form being two to three inches high others are concerned exclusively with root development below ground while others are apparently specialists in color and paint the flowers by means of the streaming motion of their cloud-like bodies. There appears to be little trace of any selective or discriminating work done individually. They all seem actuated by a common influence that affects them continuously, and which strongly suggests the same type of instinctive prompting that marks the bee and ant. THE HUMAN FORM Though the nature spirit must be regarded as practically irresponsible, living a gladsome joyous and delightfully untrammeled life each member appears to possess at least a temporary definite individuality at times and to rejoice in it the diminutive human form sometimes grotesque as in the case of brownie and gnome sometimes beautifully graceful as in the surface fairy variety if conditions allow is assumed in a flash for a while it is retained and it seems clear that the definite and comparatively concrete shape affords pleasure above the ordinary. There is no organization perceptible, as one might perhaps hastily infer. The content of the body still appears homogeneous, though somewhat denser, and the shape of human is usually only seen when not at work. The nature-spirit, so clothed, indulges in active movement and skipping and dancing gestures, and exhibits a gay abandon, suggestive of the keenest delight in the experience. It is evidently time off and play for it, though its work seems charming enough. If disturbed or alarmed, the change back to the slightly subtler vehicle, the magnetic cloud, is as sudden as the birth. What determines the shape assumed, and how the transformation is effected, is not clear, One may speculate as to the influence of human thought, individual or in the mass, and quite probably the explanation when found will include this influence as a factor, but I am intent here not on theorizing, but on a narrative of observed happenings. One thing is clear, the nature-spirit form is objective, objective that is, in the sense in which we apply that term to a stone, a tree, and a human body. FAIRY WINGS The wings are a feature that one would hardly expect to find in conjunction with arms. In this respect the insect type, with its several limbs and two or more wings, is a nearer model. But there is no articulation and no venation, and moreover the wings are not used for flying. Streaming emanations is the only description one can apply in some varieties particularly the sylphs the streamers surround the body as by a luminous aura sprayed to a feathery mist i was told that the earlier and more elaborate red indian head-dresses must have been inspired from this source so suggestive are they though the best of them are but poor copies of the originals food there is no food taken as we should regard it nourishment, usually abundant and ample for sustenance, is absorbed directly by a rhythmic breathing or pulse. Resource to the magnetic bath on occasion appears to be their only special restorative. The perfume of flowers is delighted in, and reversely disagreeable odors repel. This is one of many reasons, besides timidity, why human society is usually avoided, there being little that is inviting in that connection for them, and much that is obnoxious. Birth, Death, and Sex Any estimate of length of life is misleading. Because comparison with ourselves cannot be made, there is no real birth nor death, as we understand the terms, simply a gradual emergence from, and a return to, a subtler state of being. This process takes some time, probably years in certain varieties and their life on the denser level corresponding to our adult period may be as long as the average human there is nothing definite in all this however except the fact of the gradual emergence and return there is no sex as we should regard it though so far as i can gather there is division and subdivision of body at a much subtler and earlier level than that usually sensed. This process seems to correspond to the fission and budding of our familiar, simple animalcules, with the addition, towards the end of the cycle, of fusion or reassembly into the larger unit. SPEECH AND GESTURE Below the sylph there appears to be nothing, or very little, in the way of a language of words. Communication is possible by inflection and gesture, much as the same can be exercised with domestic animals. Indeed, the relation of human with the lower nature spirits seems to be about on par with that of kittens, puppies, and birds. Yet there is abundant evidence of a tone language among them. Music by pipe and flute is common, though to the human ear of the quaintest character but whether the instrument or the voice is the real source, I cannot yet determine. The higher orders of nature spirits are adding mentality to the emotional development, and speech with them is possible. Their attitude to ordinary humanity is unfriendly rather than well-disposed, and often hostile, arising probably from our utter disregard of the amenities. I am beginning to see sense and reason in the burnt offerings of yore, Pollution of the atmosphere is a horror to the sylphs, and deeply resented. An ancient saying I had seen somewhere came to mind when discussing the beautiful air spirits and their work. Agni, fire, is the mouth of the gods. Our sanitary and burial customs are doubtless still capable of improvement. One fairy lover said to me gleefully, Ah well, you will never be able to get photographs of the sylphs, They know too much for you. If we can establish friendly relations with them, though, the weather may be ours, if that be desirable. Cause and effect. The dissection and examination of vegetable forms, however exhaustive, is but an analysis of effects. No adequate cause is therein to be found any more than a dissection of a sculpture which disclosed the craftsman the amazing skill and evidence in the plant kingdom in construction adaptation and adornment demand the labour of workman, mechanic and artist their recognition in the nature spirits fills the vague hiatus between the sun's energy and the material wrought on our own human side of the line the findings of two pieces of wood nailed together would unmistakably point to a workman of sorts Yet we are accustomed to gaze with wonder and admiration on the exquisitely built forms of a whole kingdom, and murmur evolutionary processes, or the hand of God, according to our temperament. An agent is necessary on the one side, and no less on the other. Mode of working. The feature that will appeal to every nature lover interested in the vital processes of plant life is the craftsmanship of the nature-spirit agent. An inference, if it be simple enough, often escapes us, though in this case the experiences gathered of our own human labor suggest the analogy vividly. An analogy with a difference, however, for the hidden manner of work of the nature-spirit, is in most respects the exact opposite in character to our own. In this physical world we labor with hands and tools, and work consistently on exteriors, always indeed handling and applying our material from the outside. Addition, accretion, is our constructive method. We find ourselves made that way, and it is our characteristic mode of approach. The nature spirits operate from the interior, working from a centre outwards. Their aim appears to be to achieve an ever closer touch with the environment, and to that end the driving urge of their activity is how best to adapt the means to their hand. It is easy to perceive the cause of variety in nature in view of this striving endeavor to organize the vehicle that the nature spirits use, and so gain in endless ways a closer touch. Flower coloring, mimicry, seed protection, and distribution, defensive and aggressive measures— all the thousand and one devices employed to attain an end point to an intelligence working through agents who at their own level are often in more or less antagonistic relation with each other variety and difference is as much in evidence as among humanity and makes for that diversity of form and custom that we find on our side so fruitful of experience in the tilling of the soil and the culture of plant life for our own purposes, we have worked intimately together, though unconsciously. The efforts of nature's spirits, working by themselves, without our assistance, produce the wild flowers and berries of our woodlands and meadows, while partnership with the human yields a record of cultivated cereal, flower and fruit, immensely richer. PLANT IN CONSCIOUSNESS THE RELATION OF THE NATURE SPIRIT TO THE CONSCIOUSNESS FUNCTIONING THROUGH THE VEGETABLE KINGDOM GENERALLY IS AN INTERESTING STUDY, TOO, FOR THE TWAIN APPEAR QUITE SEPARATE. THIS MIGHT PERHAPS BE LIKENED TO THE ROLE RESPECTIVELY OF CREW AND PASSENGER IN A SHIP. THE SLUMBERING, OR AT BEST SLOWLY AWAKENING, CONSCIOUSNESS OF THE PLANT MAKES OF IT LITTLE MORE THAN AN IDLE TRAVELER, WHEREAS THE NATURE SPIRITS, ALERT AND ACTIVE, attend to the upkeep and navigation of the craft, and the voyage through the kingdom means a growth and development for both. THE FUTURE What might follow an intelligent understanding of the little people, and the establishment of mutual good feeling, opens up a prospect alluring in the extreme. It would be for us a working in the light instead of in darkness, a foretaste of such cooperation be gathered by noting the effect of a devoted lover of flowers on his or her charges. The nature-spirit responds to emotion, and appears keenly appreciative of kindly attention and affection. Whether this applies with any force to any but the varieties concerned with flowers and fruits, I cannot say, but it certainly does to them, and the intelligent direction of effort in place of empirical incident tempts one's speculation to run riot as to future possibilities the awakened self-consciousness of the human kingdom with a vigorous mentality linked to kindly emotion and physical action may enable an ages-old debt to be adjusted we have served the nature-spirit line of evolution consciously not at all but by understanding the situation We can cooperate together intelligently and helpfully, and the service of both, to mutual advantage, can take the place of blind experiment and groping self-interest. E.L.G. End of Part 1 of Chapter 8